Well, for those of you who know me, uh, you all know that I love food. I love food. Um, so much so that like, certain people are uncomfortable eating with me um, because of how um, audible I can get in eating things. I'm just like groaning. There's sounds that are happening. It's just uncomfortable to eat with me. And so for that, I'm sorry. But I absolutely love food. And in particular, I love like li- the food of our city. Yes and amen? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So this week, we had a very, very good Los Angeles Food Week. On Monday, uh, we had dinner with Alex and Allie, who I'm officiating their wedding in a few weeks. And so we got together to talk through all the wedding plan. And uh, we went to John and Vinny's in Ladera. How many of you are familiar with the gospel of John and Vinny's? Yes. Uh, Yes and amen. And so we went out. I mean, it was just like, it's awesome. The sommelier comes over. We're doing the thing where he's like talking about wine. And we're just like, "Uh uh-huh, pretending we know what he's talking about. We've all been there. Don't lie. Uh, And then we had, man, we had uh, gem salad. We had this um, peach and burrata salad that was absolutely insane. Broccolini. We had the white lightning pizza with pickled jalapenos. The ham and easy was incredible. And then for dessert, we had like vanilla soft serve with espresso and affogato. And it was heaven, it was heaven on earth. And then on Wednesday, Lily came over and watched Emma and Arlo for us. We, me and Aaron hadn't had a chance to do like just the two of us dinner in a minute. So Lily took, hung out with the kids and we went to Katsunori on the marina. Hand rolls right on the water. Oh my gosh. It was, it was incredible. So I just had an incredible food week. There's more to be said. I could go on and on and on because we live in Los Angeles. We have some of the best food in the world all smacked together right here. And then on top of that, just like one of my favorite places in the world is being in the kitchen, music playing way too loud, and like cooking, just jamming out cooking. It's one of my favorite. Th- I absolutely love food. I say all this to say, this is one of the reasons I'm a Christian, Because in the Christian faith, what we find here is a story that is made up of meals. What is the first recorded words of God to Adam and Eve in the garden? You can eat from any of the trees of the field. It's an invitation to a giant fruit salad. Chapter 3, what is the fallout of humanity? What is it talked about? Our willful distrust to choose good and evil for ourselves is is told as the story of what? Us eating from a tree. Abraham and Sarah, as they get the promise from God that there's going to be a a redemption in the midst of this broken story, how does it happen? A meal sitting there eating. The Passover meal, feasting while they were being delivered from slavery in Egypt. Manna, bread in the desert. Jesus shows up on the scene and his first miracle is water into wine at a wedding. He's walking around and he's feeding people and he's eating with people. One commentator says that the gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or walking from a meal. Another commentator, Luke, says you can't read Luke's gospel without getting hungry. Jesus is all about food. Yes and amen. And then where does Jesus point us to? Is Where is the story going at the end of it? The reunion of heaven and earth, of all things coming back together again and being made new, is talked about as the wedding supper of the Lamb. As a meal. We have a faith that is all about food. And similarly, the primary expression of what it means to be people of this faith, the church, is what we just read in Acts chapter 2. Three times bread gets talked about. So if you're looking for a religion and you're kind of here checking out Christianity today, may I submit to you, go with the faith that talks about food three times. And like, what does it mean to be the church? Right alongside prayer in verse 42 is the breaking of bread. 
So it doesn't mean that prayer isn't important, but it does mean that the table has central place in the life of the church. So just notice here, in verse 42, we have the breaking of bread. We'll come back to that one. But then down in 46, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. And right before that, they broke bread three times. This gets mentioned. Now here in 46, this breaking of bread from house to house and then eating their food with joyful and sincere hearts. This is an expression for them of what we looked at last week, that the church is devoted to fellowship. They are a community, a tight-knit community. And so the expression of that is in opening up our homes to one another, eating with one another, feasting and celebrating with one another. So much so, we're going to spend a whole week on, on hospitality in a couple weeks and its place within what it means to be the church. But I want to bring your attention back up to verse 42 at the beginning here today. Right in between fellowship and prayer, we have to the breaking of bread. Now, just to geek out with me for a moment, because this is going to set up everything that we're doing today. What's interesting is what we have included in verse 42 is this definite article that doesn't show up in the ones down here in verse 47. So verse 47 just says the breaking of bread, right, and the eating of food. But in the Greek, it's not brought out in the English translations, but I guess that's part of the reason why I'm here, is it says literally, to the breaking of the bread, to the breaking of the bread. And so this is immediately, what's in view here is far more than just our shared hospitality, but what has been called communion, what Paul calls the Lord's Supper, what certain traditions may call the Eucharist. It's the, the sacrament, the practice of the bread and the cup. That is what they are devoted to. Right alongside prayer, fellowship, and apostles' teaching is the sacrament of the Lord's table. Now, here's the thing. As we progress into this, I just want to like, acknowledge the tension here. When we think about what it means to be the church, like the apostles' teaching, oh, yeah, that's important, right? Oh, community, right? Oh, yeah, that's important. Prayer is like, that's hard. It's difficult. That's not, it doesn't come natural to me, but I get why that's important to the church. But here, the breaking of the bread, communion, the Lord's Supper is kind of like that is one of the key four. Like you would think, like, I, I don't know, maybe whatever you would think, justice stuff, our initiatives of care. We're going to talk about meeting everyone's needs, but why is that put down to the bottom? But this, the breaking of the bread is included here at the top. Where, where is like the, the worship service, Paul? Where is like the laser lights and the fog machine, Paul? Like whatever you think the church needs to be a church. It's so interesting that the breaking of the bread gets put here. Do we at least, you guys acknowledge that that's just like an interesting, when you think about what makes up the church, how many of us would list the breaking of the bread of being this chief importance before prayer even? Right? And so what I want to do today is just ask this question. Why was the early church so devoted to the breaking of the bread, and why do we need it as well? But in order to do that, we really first have to acknowledge, like, what is the breaking of the bread? What is the Lord's Supper? What is communion? And so this is why I had you save a spot in Luke 22. Would you flip over with me to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. So there's a bit of background here. We're in the middle of the life of Jesus. We are approaching. We are the night before his arrest, his betrayal, and his, his movement to the cross, his death on the cross. This is the night before. And so Jesus has gathered together with his disciples for the Passover meal that he's, he's celebrated with them over the past few years. And yet, yet this one has a unique dimension to it as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So Luke 22, 14. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So we stop right here. So what Jesus has just set forward is what his take is on this meal that he's given. So one just simple answer, why was the other church so devoted to this meal? Because of the, the amount of significance that Jesus weaved into this meal. And so there's so much that can be said. We could be here for all day, but I just want to identify four kind of key things that are happening in the table. Just to set up, again, to, not to answer the question of everything that's going on in the table, but just to give us some background so we can come back to the question, why should we be so devoted to it, Okay. So the first thing that we have here in verses 14 through 17 is what one scholar called sacred time travel. Like, what is the table? One commentator referred to it as sacred time travel. Notice what Jesus does in instituting this meal is he points backward to the Jewish Passover festival. And he says that my suffering, what I'm about to go to on the cross, is linked up with that story in this meal taking on a new form. That no longer is the Passover meal, this meal that I'm instituting, simply looking back to remember Israel's redemption and freedom from slavery and into Egypt. That story has now been replayed and even fulfilled in me going to my cross. And so part of coming to the table is with us. We're stepping in. We're reminding ourselves. We're entering in sacred time travel, you know, to the story of Israel being delivered from, uh, from slavery in Egypt and also to Jesus' forgiving work that he's brought about through his suffering. So it's a looking back. It's just what Jesus, it's sacred time travel backwards. Looking back over the story that, we, that, has been, that we're now find ourselves as a part of. Understanding ourselves in light of all that's come together here that I, though totally you know, Gentile, not at all Jewish, am somehow part of that story that God's been doing of bringing people out of slavery. And that I, though 2,000 years removed from Jesus' death, am, am one of the people that he has suffered for to bring about redemption and salvation in my life. This is who I, we find ourselves reacquainted with who we are. But similarly, Jesus points out in the following verses where he's talking about, take this, I'm not going to take this until he talks about the kingdom of God being fulfilled, the kingdom of God coming. That, that this sacred time travel, when we come to the table, when we eat and we drink, is us looking back but also looking forward. It is a prophetic appetizer of what Jesus is going to do in the future. Of, as, again, I talked about in Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so all this to say, big esoteric time travel stuff, is just simply to say, when we come to the table, we are reorienting ourselves to the story that God is telling within the world. Re-coming back to the fact that I belong to a story that has been in in going on long since I've been here, and, and this is where my story is going. Redemption, new creation, and so I refine myself. This is my story. This is who I am. But second, we also find in verse 17 and 19 that Jesus says that this meal isn't just uh, sacred time travel. It's also, he gives thanks. Twice he gives thanks in the midst of the meal. There's this, it's a meal of thanksgiving. Or in Greek, the word is Eucharist. This is where the word Eucharist comes from. When people refer to the table, it's a, it's a Thanksgiving meal. 
And so out of remembering and reorienting ourselves to the story that we're a part of, this meal is a way for us to celebrate who, who we are and what God has done within our story. We take this as a moment to remind ourselves not just where I'm at, but then to celebrate. Like I get to feast and eat and remember this is who I am and this is what God has done for me. So it's a meal of thanksgiving. And then third, in verse 17, is Jesus tells them not just to go and, hey, take the bread and the cup and go do it in your homes. They take it, they share in it together. And so the meal is also a reflection, a reminder, an expression of, like we looked at last week, our fellowship together, our koinonia, that we are a community knit together by Jesus. And so in the midst of our diversity, in the midst of our differences, in the midst of even our difficulties with one another, when we all come and take from the same broken bread and drink from the same divided cup, we are expressing the truth of who we really are, even in the midst of the difficulties of finding that actualized within our community. How are we doing so far? Okay, good. This is big front load of theology, and I promise lots of practical on the back end. So thank you for sticking with me. But we got one more big theological hurdle to, to track first. And that is fourth, that the meal is our means of remembering and receiving Jesus. Remembering and receiving his broken body and his shed blood. Now, I use these two words together, remembering and receiving, and I use them every single week very intentionally as most within the, the church tradition over the past 2,000 years and trying to figure out what's going on within this meal have split off to one or the other. That it is either simply a reminder of Jesus or on the other side that in receiving Jesus, it is us literally physically receiving Jesus either through transformation or some coexistence in the bread and the cup. And so normally we divide on either. It's either remind, remembering and reminding or we get in the terry of it's actually receiving Jesus' physical body. And the problem is that the line gets split, and I really think those are meant to belong together. And so again, I really don't want to do fire hydrant like theology, because most of you, some of you have really good questions about this and are working through that. Some of you are just like, I just want to know what this means in my life. So let me give my personal take on why I hold together remembering and receiving together. And so for those of you that are like, I don't even know the, the, the debate, this is just, this is a good entry point into it. For me, when we come to the table, we are both remembering Jesus and receiving him. And, and this really, for me, revolves around what Jesus meant by that word, do this in remembrance of me. What was remembrance in the mindset of the biblical authors? What is remembering in the life of Jesus? When he says remembrance, what is he thinking about? What is he referring to? And so if we were to survey over and over again throughout the scriptures the way that the Bible talks about remembering, what we find is that it is not simply mental recall. Bruce Waltke, is, he's one of the foremost Old Testament theologians of our day, writes, you'll see it right behind me, that remembrance equals participation. So just track this, upload this, think about this for a minute. Remembrance equals participation. Remembrance is not simply mental recall. It is participation. So how many of you have ever read through the Psalms and you find the psalmist always calling out to God to remember me and do not forget me? And, and you're just like, so is, what, what does that do for your view of God? That we, he always has to be, hey, do you remember me, God? Hi, don't forget me. It, it, we, if we're not having this within our mindset that remembrance is participation, it can lead us to believe that God is like a, is like a, a senile, like Werther's grandpa up in heaven who's got like hard candies and sure he's nice, but you kind of have to remind him who you are every now and again. Like, hi, remember me? Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. 
But that's when we remember that remembrance is participation, when we have this framework, what the psalmist is doing is not saying, hi, God, remember me. He's calling on him to participate in my groaning. He's calling on him to enter into and be present and at work within my situation. This isn't that God has forgotten me. It's calling on him to participate in what's going on right here in the midst of my story. And then similarly, when biblical authors will lament, they talk about uh, Israel's disobedience, them walking away from God as them forgetting God. Which once again, isn't God who, I don't remember or recall who that is, but them turning from participation in the life that God has made for them. So remembrance equals participation. So when we come back to Luke chapter 22, with this kind of brief flyover of the biblical theology of remembering. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, what his invitation is, do this in participation with me. Do this as you're sharing in, is the words that uh, Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. That when we do this, we share in the body of Jesus. We share in the blood of Jesus. We participate. And so this is remembering and receiving actually go hand in hand together in the biblical imagination. And so for those who would simply say that, that when we come to the table, it's simply a reminder of what Jesus has done, we are injecting our English, Western, 2,000 years removed language of what remembering is back into it, as opposed to letting Jesus' full expression of remembrance's participation shape how we think about the meal. How are we doing? Cool. Now on the other side, though, I do not think that what we need to do on the other side is then, okay, well then how do we receive Jesus in the meal? And this is where I, I just do not think what we need to do is concoct, like some traditions have done, a, um, and I'm trying to say this with all humility here because I know this is an ongoing conversation. So this is 2,000 years. I don't have the hubris that right now I'm fixing all this. I'm simply saying this is my take. What I'm saying is I, I just do not think we need to go looking for like a metaphysical explanation of how Jesus is present to us at the table when Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly tells us how he is present with his church. How is Jesus present with you? Through the Holy Spirit. And, and I don't think that, that what we need to see the table as something unique in the sense that there's another way that Jesus is present to us apart from the Holy Spirit. I think what we can hold on to, though, absolutely, is that the Holy Spirit brings Jesus' presence to us in a unique and particular way at the table that he just doesn't do throughout the rest of our weeks and the rest of our days. And so when we come to remember and receive, it is, it is us genuinely participating in Jesus, sharing in him, so that as I eat and as I drink, I am nourishing myself with the presence of Jesus. I am bringing the presence of Jesus into me in a way that can only be defined by the word sacrament, a sacred mystery. And so we need to uphold all of that tension, but also try to you know, navigate the big debates. So there we go, big theology all like set down for us is like this is the big going on when we talk about what is going on at the table. It's sacred time travel. We're reorienting ourselves to the story of the cosmos. It's Thanksgiving that we find ourselves on the, in this part of the story, that this is the story I find myself to be a part of. It's fellowship that we as a community are seeing one another as all being blood-bought, cross-saved individuals, regardless of the differences that we may have with one another. And this is how we are actively remembering and receiving Jesus in to us and with us and among us. And so we want to hold all of that intention. Can I give one example that kind of is, I, I was debating talking about this. That's really helpful for me, at least. 
I picked this up, I don't remember, years ago from some other pastor who was talking about this, and it stuck with me, is what's going on within the sacrament of baptism, which we're going to be having in a few weeks, is, is akin to what happens when a married couple takes their vows. They walk down the aisle, they say all the vows, and they promise themselves to one another. That baptism is in some way the moment that the marriage is like kicked off and begun. The promise is made, the relationship is now carrying over underneath this covenant promise to one another. And though that couple now lives within that covenant promise, they're with each other all of the time, there is these unique moments that for the sake of my daughter being in the room, we'll call date night, where when date night comes, husband and wife take the full intimacy of that fellowship and in that community and that promise, and they re-promise themselves to one another in a very deep and unique way that just doesn't happen the rest of the week. Are they always committed to one another? 100%. Are they always vulnerable? You would hope so. Are they always with one another? Yes. But there's something unique that happens in a particular rhythm of intimacy within the husband and spouse. And this is the image that many, this wasn't just this one pastor, many have pointed to what's going on between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Is this deep, unique spot and place where the Spirit makes Jesus uniquely present to us. So now with this all behind us, the question then is, why was the early church so devoted to it? With all this theology, why was the early church so devoted to it? Well, the first is, as we saw, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Why were they so devoted? Because Jesus commanded it. This wasn't like, oh, you know, if you guys want, try this out sometime. He said, do this. He commanded it in remembrance of me. And so as a brief aside on this, there's something very, very particular to... Um, the kind of, like, we're, we're kind of a hodgepodge of different church traditions here, and that's totally great. But one of the things that happens in a charismatic um, kind of tradition that we'd be a part of, one that emphasizes and eagerly pursues the gifts of the Spirit, is very regularly the charismatic gets placed over and against what we could call the sacramental. So, so track with me. The sacramental, baptism, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, we're talking about those simple, regular, rhythmic means of grace that we are called to enter into that sometimes can feel quite ordinary to us. We place those over and against the kind of exuberant, over-the-top, what we would experience as being the, the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy and tongues and all that. And so what happens is baptism in the Spirit gets placed over and against baptism in water. In communion with God, in, in worship, or, or in song, or, or whatever you know, charismatic form you may think that takes, gets placed over and against communion at the table. But what you find throughout the New Testament, right here, what we just read in Acts chapter 2, appeals to that. There's, awes and the, there's awe and there's wonder, and there's baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so what, the biblical portrait is what author Andrew Wilson calls eucharismatic. He takes together the word Eucharist and charismatic and slams them together. The biblical portrait of the church is one that values and receives the gifts of rhythm and what we might even call ritual and, go, and, and, and a, some kind of process that we enter into and receive from Jesus and also those ones that are where our hearts are on fire and like, oh, that is good. We need both of them 100%. Now, the reason that we do, why did Jesus command it? The reason that Jesus commanded it and why the early church was devoted to it was because the primary problem within a church is our spiritual amnesia. I've talked about this before. Our spiritual amnesia, our propensity to forget. John Ortberg, in the foreword to a book called Preaching as Reminding, says the problem of the human race is that we remember what we should forget and we forget what we should remember. 
People today who have more information at their fingertips than all previous generations combined cannot remember who they are, why they are here, or what they are to do. Now, if we merge Bruce Waltke's quote with Ortberg's, we find this goes even deeper, that the problem of the human race is that we participate in what we should turn from, and we turn from what we should participate in. People today who have all of the calendars and the reminder apps and the day planners all in front of them and laid out, we, we still cannot participate, live into, share in who we are, why we're here, and what they are to do. We are so forgetful. We are so turning from those things. And so this meal has been given as the primary means that our spiritual forgetfulness gets dealt with by bringing us to Jesus. So in remembering and receiving Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us, we are reminded, we receive who Jesus is, his identity, sent by the Father, commissioned into this mission, pure and blameless. He's king. We just wrap up all the identity of who Jesus is to us, and that meets us when we come to the table. And as we remember and receive that, we find who we are gets shaped and brought back to us. That my identity is not something that I need to discover. My identity is not something that I need to uh, intuit or find or create or fashion. My identity, my chief most being of who I am is a gift given through Jesus. Who am I? On the other side of Jesus' body broken and blood shed, I'm a forgiven, beloved child of God. Son or daughter, that this is at the deepest level of my identity. This is who I am. An unshakable truth that I don't need to find or discover. I come to the table and I receive it as gift through what Jesus has done. Similarly, that question, not just of who am I, but why am I here? The question of purpose. In remembering and receiving Jesus' purpose, as we come to the table and remember and receive him, we find that, what did he say when he talks about this? I have come to bring about the kingdom of God, and I have come to usher in the new covenant. And the way that he did this was through the cross. And so you go you know, either aimless, and, and you can't figure out what your life is, or you just always feel misguided, and you feel like you're chasing after the wrong things. When we come to the table and remember and receive, Jesus is the one who's bringing about the kingdom of God and ushering in the new covenant of God. We also receive those as being the purpose for, oh yes, this is why I'm here. I'm here as a belonging member of the kingdom of God. I am here as a recipient of God's promises to me. So all of my questions of like, what's my life about? Oh, it gets wrapped up in this. The kingdom of God, his will being done, his name being on, like this is why I'm here. I rediscover myself once again as I re receive and remember Jesus. And then again, the third thing that Ortberg points out was not just who am I, why am I here, but what am I to do? When I remember and receive what Jesus has done, it reminds me and it takes me deep into the reality what Jesus has done. And Henry Nowen, oh man, Henry Nowen, this could be 45 minutes, so I'm gonna try to make this quick. Henry Nowen talks about how when you look at what Jesus does with the bread, so he takes or he chooses it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it. What he says when he, by saying, this is my body, Henry Nouwen identifies that that is the story of Jesus, of being chosen and taken, sent from the Father, blessed, you are my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased, in his cross being broken and then being given as a gift to the world. 
And so when I take that into portrait and I take that as what I'm remembering and receiving, I also come to terms with the fact that this is the gospel that doesn't just save me, it shapes me. And so Henry Nouwen goes on to say that this, what are you to do? What is the life of the believer? He summarizes it in that. Taken, chosen by God, blessed through the work of Jesus, broken in self-giving love and obedience, and given as a gift back to the world. In so doing, becoming an appetizer of the true bread of life. That as people spend time with you and they see your breaking and giving, your blessing, like when they see that, that points them to the true bread of life, that points them to Jesus. Where when they finally begin to read the Gospels, they finally begin to understand the person of Jesus, they go, oh, it's like I've seen a mini version of that just down the street. So you bring all these together, you know, as the old saying goes, like, we don't drink to forget, we drink to remember. We don't eat to forget, we eat to remember. We eat to bring this story back to us, not just mentally, but again, remember, through the Spirit, Jesus making that truth, like, abide within us at the deepest levels. So that's why we devote ourselves. Finally, it's just the question, how, how do we devote ourselves to this? How do we devote ourselves to this? So first is Acts chapter 20. You'll see it behind me here. Acts chapter 20, we get this little insight in the midst of like normal book of Acts kind of stuff, this little insight into how they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Yay, Paul. This goes on to be one of my favorite stories in the world. Um, so just notice a couple of things here. First, at the very beginning, on the first day of the week, there seems to be some pattern of communion being received on a weekly basis on the first day of the week, which is today. On the first day of the week, they gathered. So there's a weekly rhythm in their devotion to the breaking of bread. Second is we assembled to break the bread. There is a, we, it's, it's this, we gathered together. That the Lord's Supper, that communion is not... Um, like, like a, a, I don't know, like a Jesus Lunchables for us to like use in whatever context that we want. Like I found guys doing this randomly at conferences. I'm not, there's, I've, I have officiated weddings where people have done communion at their weddings. And so this is not me making a stink, but I, because it's fine. But what I would say is there is something unique that like, what is communion? It, it, you can't separate it from the gathering of God's people together. And so it's not just for you and me and Kent to take, you know, on our camping trip. This is something that is when the church is gathered together. And then finally, we see that it's connected to teaching, the teaching of church leaders, that the gathering and the breaking of the bread comes together with some form of teaching. Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be going on till midnight, thank goodness. But it's even, Luke is interesting because he says, like, oh, Paul spoke to them. That's the assumption. But then he's like, yeah, not all teaching is meant to go to midnight. It's because Paul was about to leave. I think he was probably doing a, a Q&A session on communion for people, and that's why it went to midnight. And so you just see, what does it mean to be devoted? There's a weekly rhythm. It's a gathering as a community. And then it's united to, like, what we're doing right here. It's meant to be in response to the teaching of the word. Now, one more place that we're going to kind of look at really quickly. This, this is kind of where we'll begin to land, because I think it just sets up for that. Is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul... The apostle is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's trying to detail with them, call them back to, like everything that we're reading in Acts chapter 2, true devotion to the posture and practices of spirit-filled people. 
And, and because for them, they've just completely missed the boat. And one of the places that they have is in the breaking of the bread. It's in this meal. Some of them getting drunk. They're divided and like socioeconomic. The rich are eating over here. The poor are going hungry. So Paul writes to them to detail how to properly devote themselves to the meal. And so he writes this. So whoever then eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. And in this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So the opposite for Paul right here of devoting yourselves to the eating and drinking is not abstaining from the table. It's not not. It's coming to it and eating it in the wrong way. It's coming to it in a way that he defines as being unworthy. And so what he prompts us to do before we come to the table is to examine ourselves, to examine ourselves, to look over ourselves. But the whole question is, if I'm examining myself to not take it in an unworthy way, what is the unworthy way I'm examining myself for? So the first one would be, as Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians, would be anyone coming to the table who doesn't identify as a follower of Jesus, who has not received Jesus, for all of the stuff that we do in our gathering, every part of this is open for anyone to investigate and check out Jesus. The table would be the one point in the gathering, the one practice that we take on that we would say, hey, actually, because of what this is signifying, actually, because of what's happening here, we want to with, we would, we'd hold this back. This is where the Christians express and participate in our relationship to Jesus as our saving king. And we would just want to keep you from proclaiming something within your life that isn't true in the rest of your life, in the rest of the week. Now, the second one would be an ongoing form of like habitual, unrepentant sin. So this isn't the kind of mess that we all work our way through, slowly getting one degree of glory a little bit further along, but in the midst of it, we've always got some struggles that we're wrestling through. That's not what Paul would be talking about here. This unworthy manner would be like belligerent, chosen, habitual sin. I know Jesus has called me in this and over in this pocket of my life, I'm keeping this thing going over here. Paul would say, that is the unworthy manner to come and take it in. Because what you're expressing with yourself is I'm, I'm here to remember and receive who I am and why I'm here and what God has done for me on, my son, on Sunday morning. And he's saying, you're not living that out in the rest of your life. And so why would you do so? And then the last one would be, because this meal is one about our fellowship and our participation with one another, Paul would say, withhold it. If you're like, I identify as a follower of Jesus, and yet I've got beef with like so-and-so over there. Like where I've got, I, you and me, we've got differences that I don't think we're going to be able to get behind. Or you said something to me, or I said this about you. And so there's gossip, or there's bitterness, or there's, you know, challenge within the community. Paul would say, don't come and pretend that you guys are all one when you're not giving yourself to a life of actually pursuing that in the community. And so the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in that moment, what should be done is don't come to the altar until you go. Find your brother or sister, make it right, and then come to the table. So in all of this, the whole point is not perfection, but the whole point is self-examination. Where am I not perfectly, but faithfully following Jesus? To do so otherwise, Paul would say, is still a form of participation. But it is not participation with Jesus. It's participation with those responsible for crucifying him. That their guilt now is carried over and given to you. In the same way that the forgiveness of Jesus is put on those who come to him in repentance and reception and receptivity, that those who belligerently come forward and they pretend they've got grace figured out, he says, you're just lumping on the guilt of the centurions with you. 
Now, in the midst of all this self-examination, which is rightly done, a regular, I figured out where to put this. Regularly as a pastor, what I encounter with so many of you, and I don't know, if, I think it's like a, you know, it's, it's kind of some of it is the tradition that we're in. But people withholding, like abstaining from coming forward for something other than those reasons. And so it's like, oh, I'm, I'm not coming forward. Um, and by all counts, someone's a faithful follower of Jesus. We're not perfect, but a faithful follower of Jesus who says, I'm going to abstain from taking it, either because I don't feel worthy of it this week, or I, I don't want to go through like the religious motions, or I feel like God is distant, or I feel like I wasn't like the Christian that I should have been this week. And so I'm going to withhold from taking it. Brothers and sisters, those are the moments when you need this most. This is not, hear me, your expressivism of like showing off, I've got it all figured out in the way of Jesus. This is the posture of receiving Jesus. So you say, I don't want to take it because I feel unworthy. Like that's the gospel. Like that's the whole thing that we're here for is that we all here are a collective and individual mess. And that is why the body had to be broken and the blood had to be shed. And sort of withhold because you're like, man, I don't really feel like I got it all figured out. It's like, join the, that's what we're all here for. Join the club. So again, I'm not talking about like ongoing, unrepent, like just, you know, habitual. I'm saying in the midst of my life and I'm just, I don't feel like I didn't read my Bible 17 times this week. Some of you guys are doing like the hard 75 or whatever this nonsense, like crazy stuff is. (laughs) Not nonsense, sorry. We're very impressed. Uh, But in the midst of that is like, yes, like we, but this this is meant to, that's, it's grace, it's grace. And so to hold back because I don't feel like I've obtained to some worthiness is like you're missing it entirely. Similarly, for those of you like, I feel distant from God and like I just don't feel, this is one of the means that God has given to bring you close to himself. To be reminded of the fact that God dwells not just around you, but in you. And so to feel like I feel distant from God and then to step back or to say, I just don't want to go through the religious motions and not do it because you're waiting for your heart to feel, that doesn't work in any other relationship. I just speak, being married, I can speak about marriage. It's like, if, if I find that like the fire and the energy and the excitement or whatever, the devotion in my marriage is missing, the thing that I don't do is like slowly step away and say, you know, we're going to separate until I start feeling my feelings again. What I do is I show up faithfully in the relationship, trusting that as I do, sooner or later, my fickle little heart is going to catch back up again. And so in the same way, when it comes to our relationship with God, is, is I'm not judging my coming forward to receive based on how I feel, but on the truth of who he is and what he's done. And I let that week over week reassure my little heart that there is a love that goes beyond how I feel about it. And that's what you need most. And so all of this here is the self-examination of how we devote ourselves to this meal. This devotion is not, is not us taking a moment to go, am I a sinner or am I a saint this week? Sinner, okay, I can't take it. You know, saint, all right, I'm ready to go. We, you, we are all a big bundled mess of those two words. And yet the gift of what Jesus has done is that saint reigns over all of them through his work. And so what we're doing in our self-examination is not getting out the Excel spreadsheet of like, you know, doing, running all the numbers of how I did this week. What I'm doing is I'm returning back to like my spiritual hunger. I'm listening for my like, I can't find a better expression. My spiritual stomach, is it growling? 
If it's not growling, then that's the thing that I need to attend to because it means I've been feeding myself on something other than Jesus. So the only prerequisite in self-examination is hunger. Are you hungry for this? Are you hungry to find your story reoriented to the cosmic one that God has been telling? Are you hungry for celebration in the midst of a life of groaning and lament that the resurrection life and forgiveness of sins is available to me? Are you hungry for a community that's unified in the midst of all the differences and divisions that happen within our lives and within our worlds? Are you hungry for Jesus? And that, so that becomes the self-examination tool. And the whole point is the only reason to abstain is if you go, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not hungry for Jesus. And that may be, I'm still trying to figure out who he is. Like I'm trying, I'm looking at the menu. Like I'm trying to figure out what the Jesus, and that's totally fine. But for those who identify and say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, Paul would say, the way that you're living your life shows the absence of hunger and that you're filling yourself on other things, whether that's division and gossip within the church or just willful disobedience to the way of Jesus in your life. And so the invitation in that self-examination is not go and do 30 lashes. It's not prove yourself as faithful. It is simply the posture that repents and says, Jesus, I want to, I want to receive and remember who I am. Remind me of my identity in the midst of my failures. Remind me why I am here. And with spirit, would you shape me to live in the life that you've called me to live in? To, like Jesus, be taken, blessed, broken, and given. And so the only prerequisite for this is, is hunger. And so that is the question that we ask ourselves each week. When we come to the table, before we do, as we just take a stock over our hunger, and we just, what's going on within the drives and the desires of my heart? And am I truly hungry for Jesus? And we just name that, and if not, through prayer and with the Spirit, we attend to those things, and then we get up and we come forward and we remember Jesus. We remember his body broken. We remember his blood shed. We remember he went to the cross. We remember his resurrection. We remember the sending of the Spirit. We remember, we proclaim that he is king. And we receive his presence that through the Spirit. He is not just with us and among us, but in me, at work changing me. And that's what I'm most hungry for, is the presence of Jesus within me. And so the table is one of those things that like, you know, Whatever tradition you come from, it's just whatever collective is, we're so prone to set it off to not just like the side, but to set it as, as a, I don't, know what, I don't know what extra credit in the Sunday worship. I don't know what else to call it. And yet for the church, this is key. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, this is what it means to be the community of Jesus. As we remember and receive him, not just as a theology in our mind, but as an experience that we enter into together. And so let's pray, and let's just move into this now together.